Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church once again. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 16. This is our How It Changes Everything teaching series. We're working our way through the book of Acts. This morning's uh, title is Holy Spirit's Work. Let me start off by asking you a couple questions for you to think about. You don't need to answer this out loud, but just uh, reflect on these uh, questions. Are there aspects of your life that are totally unexplainable apart from the work and the power of the Holy Spirit? Let me ask that one more time. Are there aspects of your life that are totally unexplainable apart from the work and the power of the Holy Spirit? Oh, cool. Here's the next question. When was the last time you knew unquestionably that the Holy Spirit was speaking to you, leading you, comforting you, pouring God's love into your heart, and empowering you to do what would otherwise be impossible for you to do? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the key verse of this uh, teaching series. It's the key verse of the whole book of Acts. You guys familiar with it? Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The word witness means martyr. Here's my definition for what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone whose heart is so smitten by the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can't help but want to live for his glory and his beauty. It's a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done through the cross. If you begin to get a grasp of this, if you begin to see this, but more importantly, that the cross begins to seize you, you will never, ever, ever be the same. That's the thrust, that's the thesis of the book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Your love will be, your heart will be so ravished by the love of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that you're going to want to take this message to the whole world. And that's literally what he says in, in almost this kind of concentric circles. He goes from Judea, Samaria, and then uh, and then he goes throughout, it basically just says throughout the whole world, throughout the whole world. And that's what we see in this pattern uh, through the book of Acts. And so today, this is what we're looking at, chapter 16. In this study, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit conveys the will of God. He leads us and how the Holy Spirit converts, transforms our lives uh, through three different case studies. Now, just by show of hands, how many would like to learn to hear the voice of God more clearly? It's pretty important, isn't it? How many would like to be transformed by the, by the power of God in your life? There's maybe an area or two in your life certainly you'd like to have transformed. If you didn't raise your hand, just ask the person next to you and they'll tell you about some areas that needs to be transformed in your life. And so you'll need the Holy Spirit working in your life. I was thinking about this whole idea of the work of the Holy Spirit and uh, I thought to my, I told my wife this last week, uh, in fact a week ago we went to uh, Flagstaff on a little quick trip. I was away last weekend. And I thought, man, if, if just hearing God's voice was a little bit like a GPS system. And I thought, if it was that easy until I started using a GPS system. <laughs> and then I realized, that isn't easy, is it? How many have ever used a GPS system, maybe in your car or on the phone? And uh, Nancy has one on her phone, but it wasn't a, an audio or a verbal, so we would, it would just kind of show you where you needed to go next. And now she's got one that's audio. Verbal, it tells you. And so we were in Flag, and we were trying to find a couple of uh, 
couple of bookstores. And so she said, well, let me just punch it in here. And so the voice came on. And the, the first thing is my, my pride got in the way. Like, they want us, she wants us, it was a woman's voice, she wants us to turn right. I think we need to turn left. And I started disputing the GPS only to get us lost. And... Uh, <laughs> And so my first problem was just disputing the GPS. How many of you ever had a GPS actually lead you astray? Yes, that's what I was thinking, but, uh, but it was actually right on. And that was the first issue was my pride, thinking I knew better than the GPS. And, and the second issue was that I could hardly really make out what she was saying. I couldn't really understand. It was almost like she had a, like a foreign accent of some sort, like from Texas or something like that. And, uh, oh, Sorry. Uh, anybody from Texas? Okay, praise God. And then I start. This is how my mind works. Then I start thinking. Wonder if God does kind of speak with a Texas accent, and uh, and no wonder I have a hard time understanding him. And then I start thinking, man, maybe the Dallas Cowboys are really God's uh, team. And, uh, and so you can kind of see how my mind works like that. And then I said, no, he he's not a Texan. No way. Uh, but. But this gal, the way she talked, it was almost like, what did she say? Did she say left, right, go straight, whatever? And we were con- somewhat confused. And you know what? It's, it's a lot like God. And I came across in, uh, a text as I was studying this, 1 Kings 19. Elijah is fleeing from the homicidal Jezebel who's out to kill him. And so he goes up on a mountain. He's desperate to hear from God and he recognizes that God was not in the strong wind or the earthquake or the, or the fire, but God was in the still, small voice. The still, small voice. Not to say that he doesn't speak to us in the, in the strong wind, the earthquake, or the fire. Even as C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. Not to say that he doesn't speak to us through those things, but in this particular situation. It was the still small voice. And this is what I learned a number of years ago, that if you want to hear his voice, we must be still and get small. Even as I was trying to listen to that GPS system, a lot of the, there was a lot of interesting parallels, just as I kind of wanted to dispute the GPS system that I know better. We tend to do that with God, don't we? Like, I know better than you, God. And then sometimes when there's this kind of static on the line, we really don't hear him that clearly because there's just a lot of noise in our life. And so what do we need to do? We need to, we need to get small. We need to humble ourselves and say, God, you know what's best for me. And we need to get still. We need to get quiet. And that's what I'm going to ask us to do this morning. Just a few moments before we read our text and work through, through this study this morning. Just take a few moments and we're going to... We're going to be still and get small through our prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. It tells us in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. It's, a, it's a, always been a favorite verse of mine. The message puts it this way. I love the way the message puts it. It says, step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. And that's what I want us to do this morning. So God, we come, we come to you. We step out of the traffic, all the noise of our lives, The noise that's outside of us, but more importantly, the noise that's inside of us. Some of us are still worried about what went down last week. Some of us are worried about the coming week. But God, we know that we can just rest in you and we can trust in you and that we can meet you in this moment right now, that you are here for us to connect with you and for us to know you and to experience your love. And God, we also 
are not only wanting to, to be, be still, but to get small. God, you know what is best for us. So we want to look into your eyes and, and, and see how much you love us. Lord, let us get a glimpse of your beauty and your glory because it is breathtaking and, and your sacrificial love is captivating. So captivate our hearts this morning. We are desperate for you to speak to us, to lead us, to comfort us, to pour your love into our hearts and to empower us to do what otherwise we would not ever be able to do and that is to live for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at the text. I'm gonna read completely through the text. We're gonna look at uh, these two things here, how the Holy Spirit conveys, how the Holy Spirit leads us, and then how the Holy Spirit converts us, how the Holy Spirit changes us. I'll go completely through the text. We're gonna read verses six through 34. I'll uh, kind of briefly comment as we work. As you well know, we finished up in chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. They brought some issues up about salvation. They handled those. They worked through those, and yet at the end of the chapter, there was a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas, so they split ways, and now we have Paul and Silas. This is Paul's second missionary journey, and in the first five verses, we see him adding to his team Timothy. And now we pick up the story in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, notice this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. It doesn't say how they were forbidden, but the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak. So the Holy Spirit speaking to them. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. There, there you have it again. So they tried to go into another area, and the, it says that the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So now God is speaking to him through this vision. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Let's continue on with the story. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, this, typically Paul would go into the synagogue. There was not enough Jews in this uh, place for, for a synagogue. So we went out to this place of prayer, and it says, and we sat down and spoke to the woman or to the women who had come together. Now here's the first case study of how the gospel impacts this life. We're going to look at three here in this text. But here's the first one. Her name is Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller, seller of purple goods. So she was very wealthy, who was a worshiper of God. She read the Torah. She followed some of the practices of the Jews. She was a seeker of God. Check this out. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul reasoned with her, 
And, and he began to give her the gospel, and her heart was, and literally, the, the Greek, if you study, study the Greek, her heart was smitten by the beauty and the glory of, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. She was just like, wow, I had no idea. She was, she was taken back by, by what Paul shared with her. And after she was baptized, by the way, the very first thing that you do once you make a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you get baptized. We're going to do a baptism party here on the mid, mid-October, I think it's 16th of October. It's one of those where we combine both of our services and we go out here. We set up our tank, have some music, hamburgers, have a lot of fun, and it's a great time for you to get baptized if you've never been baptized, to make that public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see her do right there. And notice this, not only her, but her household as well. She urged us, notice, and this is kind of the response. When you have encountered the living Jesus, it's natural for your, your heart to be so filled up, you naturally want to give. And so this is what you see happening in her life. She says, she urges us, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. I mean, immediate hospitality. Man, I, I just want to bless you guys. I'm going to bless you. So when you begin to understand the blessing that you have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, immediately it's just like, oh my goodness. I want everyone to know this. I want everyone to, to see the, the goodness of God. And so she insisted, so if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she was pretty persistent. And so evidently they went over to her house. And so they continue on with the story here. And here, here we come into the next case study. So the first case study is how the gospel impacts a person that's religious. This is going to be a case study of how the gospel impacts a, a person who is oppressed uh, spiritually, this, this slave girl. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And I think that she probably wasn't saying it quite like that, but probably more in a sardonic, kind of a sarcastic if you're familiar with demon possession, and I've been around it, that, that at times when demons will speak out of people like that, it's typically in a very sarcastic way. It's very sardonic. And you can tell that it probably wasn't the most uplifting thing because Paul gets a little bit upset. Notice this. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. He's like, wow, I'm getting tired of that. He turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. That's awesome. I mean, she was set free. Let me talk to you a little bit about demons. They're for real. People can be demon-possessed, not Christians. Christians can't be possessed. They can be oppressed. They can be tempted. He can hammer your life. He will work you over. If he can't get you to go to hell, he will inflict as much hell into your life as he can. He will do all he can to, to sideline you. But if you know Jesus, you can't be possessed. And by the way, if you know Jesus, you have the power and the authority of Jesus that demons tremble at the name of Jesus. Jesus didn't freak out over demons. Demons freaked out over Jesus when he came into an area. And so we go in the name of Jesus, and that's what he said, in the name of Jesus, and immediately, man, the demon was gone. Pretty amazing. So it's, it's for real. If you're a believer, you don't need to fear demons. If you're not a believer, you do. You do. 
You need, you need to get on Jesus' team. Bottom line. You need to know his power. You need to know what he has come to set us free of. The cross has set us free from the work of the enemy in our lives. And so, um, so we see this gal. I mean, she is set free that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Stop there just for a minute. Look up here. Let me ask you this. How would you have responded? Here you just set this young slave girl free from this demonic oppression and possession. And these guys take you. They beat you. They throw you down into the inner prison and put your feet in stocks. How would you respond? Look how they respond. (laughs) It's awesome. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were like, what? you got to be kidding. I don't have what they have. I mean, that would be kind of what they were were saying. Certainly the jailer is going to say that. Now, let me just say something here real quick about suffering. Suffering cannot rob you of joy. There is a joy that is founded in Jesus that there is no suffering on this planet earth that can take that away from you. That's what these guys are demonstrating. There is a joy in Jesus that goes beyond circumstances. There's only one thing really that can rob you of that, of joy, and that's idolatry. And that's when you begin to elevate something above who Christ is and what he wants to do in your life. If you take, for instance, they didn't, obviously it wasn't comfort because they're not comfortable. It wasn't their, even their lives, their lives were being threatened. It wasn't their circumstances. It was the fact we have him and he is more than enough. That's what they're doing. We tend to, we tend to worship that which we find the most joy in. Whatever we find the most joy in, we tend to worship. We are all worshipers by nature. They found the most joy in Jesus and in the presence of Jesus, knowing that Jesus would never, ever leave them or forsake them, regardless of what goes down in their life. And and it's a beautiful illustration. And everybody's checking this out. They're going, whoa, what do these guys have? I need that. I want that. Story goes on, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. By the way, they would have murdered him for allowing the prisoners to escape. So he was kind of doing it for them. Because this is a culture of honor. And so he would have been publicly uh, humiliated, very dishonorable. You let the prisoners escape, now we're going to execute you. But he decides, hey, they're gone, I'm gone, I'm going to go ahead and kill myself. I'll do it. do it before they have a chance to. But notice this, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And that's important, that's an important point. We're going to come back to it later on in the study. 
And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And, and, and here he goes. He was baptized. So, so check this out. At midnight. So this is happening at nighttime. All of this. At nighttime, they take him out. They baptize him. He and his whole family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And, and he rejoiced along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Now, you can read the rest of the story because what they do is they go back to prison and then the magistrates come back and, and then release them. And so the rest of the story, that's the end of chapter, that's the rest of chapter 16. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's talk about this. First question, how the Holy Spirit conveys, how the Holy Spirit leads us, verses 6 through 10, and then how the Spirit converts us, how he transforms us. We'll look at these three case studies. So here's, if I were to sit down with you, you would come to me and say, hey, I've got to make a decision here. I'm getting a job offer or opportunity out of town, and so I need to decide, and I need to really hear God's voice in this. And we met at Starbucks. This is typically what I would do. I would sit with you and walk you kind of through a process like this. And, and I believe... And I'm, all the cross-references that I'm using here are actually from the book of Acts, but we could, we could look throughout the whole scripture and find these points of reference, so to speak, as it relates to how God speaks to us. But here's the first one, how the Holy Spirit speaks through the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, okay, that seems almost kind of obvious because that's what we're saying. But subtly through thoughts, ideas, impressions, but also in a spectacular way through prophecy, dreams, and visions. We see that in verses 9 through 10, Paul's vision at night. But it's got to be more than that. And every time we have any kind of a thought, impression, idea, or a vision, or a dream, we always need to take it back to the Word of God. I had a, a couple, a considerable amount of time ago, quite a, quite a long time ago, they came to me and they wanted to get married. And I said, so, okay, you want to get married, so tell me a little bit about yourself and what makes you think you need to get married. And they said, well, the thing that validates our getting married is that we were on our back porch, and as we were back there, there was a dove that came and landed on the statue in the backyard. And, uh, and that's why we think we need to get married. I go, what? I go, is it like, so is there anything else, anything else that you would add to that maybe that would help you to understand that you're going to get married? No, that's pretty much it. And I said, you know, I wanted to say this, but I didn't. I said, did like a tree branch fall on your heads? And you guys aren't thinking clearly? I said, you need to have a little bit more than that. And more that I talked to them, that there was really some violation, even scripturally, that they were kind of violating in there being unequally yoked and some other things and some issues in their life and, and not having dealt appropriately with past issues. And so it's got to be more than that experience. Every experience that you have needs to be filtered through this book. If there's an experience that you have that doesn't, isn't consistent with what this book is saying, then it's not coming from God ultimately. By the way, that experience should make Jesus more vivid. When the Holy Spirit's working in our life, the, whole, uh, the Holy Spirit makes Christ more real to us. It points will always point us to Jesus. Fourth chapter, First John makes that pretty clear. So if you got the Spirit, a Spirit speaking to you, doesn't exalt Jesus, it's the wrong team, okay? You just need to know that. It's gonna always exalt Christ. The Holy Spirit will always exalt Christ. And so the Word of God is the next. So the Spirit of God, the Word of God, 
And we see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 20, when they were going to replace Judas, they made reference back to the word of God. Acts eleven sixteen through 17, Peter's report to the church in how the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles. He makes reference back to the word of God because they're going, oh, how is this going to happen? How did the Holy Spirit fall? This is a weird experience. He goes, well, the Holy, the, God talked about this. He predicted this. So he makes reference to the word of God. Number three, people of God. So the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God, Acts eleven twenty eight. we have a revelation of an individual is giving revelation about what's coming down in the church. Acts 13, 1 through 3, you see that through group prayer and worship, God sends out Paul and Barnabas. And, and this is really why it's important to be a part of a small group. It's, it's important to, to get feedback from a small group that if you're, if you're trying to make a big decision or whatever decision you're making, you can bounce things off of some friends that are in your group. They can, they can kind of give you a perspective that otherwise you wouldn't have. So you got the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God, and then you got the providence of God. Providence of God. Open, closed doors, illness, job loss, or promotion. And you see that in these verses here, verses six through seven. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit didn't allow them to go into these certain regions. Let me tell you a little bit about how I got on the uh, Phoenix Fire Department a number of years ago. It was truly a miracle. It was really the providence of God that I, I got on the fire department. I was working out of Palo Verde at the time, thought, there's got to be a better way to make a living. And so we were out there talking. I said, and I had some buddies that were on the fire department, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll pursue that. So I spent a year pursuing the fire department, which is pretty extensive. You have to take a considerable amount of time off work, which if you work construction, you lose that money. So it was a lot of money that I had lost for my family, and I, I took the written exam, and then I took a physical agility exam, and I was brought in for an oral board. And I did all of that, and I thought I felt like I did really well, but then towards the end of the year, I got this card in the mail that said, sorry, better luck next year, you'll have to try again next year. And I looked at the card and said, well, that's a closed door. I guess God doesn't want me to, to go in the fire department. So I threw it in the trash, and I told my mom, because she asked me, because she had been praying about that for me, and she goes, so... So what'd you hear? I said, well, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. I got the card in the mail and I'm not gonna make it and I'm not gonna try again. I think that's a closed door, so I need to move on. She goes, listen, this is what my mom said. My mom's a very godly woman. I love her dearly. And this is what she said. She said, listen, God can make a way. God can do whatever he wants to do. And I go, I got the card right here, look. They rejected me. How's he gonna make a way? And guess what? You're not going to believe this, but uh, I was bathing my kids. They were small at the time. Nancy was at a Bible study that night. I get a phone call. I run over and grab the phone, and this guy says, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Chief Grant Gay with Phoenix Fire Department, and we have never done this before, but you were on this alternate list. You had scored well enough that you were on this alternate list, and we just now annexed Ahwatukee. We're going to add two more stations, and so you're on this list of six that we're going to add to the, to the fire academy in two weeks. Can you work with us? And I was like, I dropped the phone. I was like, what? And I told my mom, I said, you're right. I was wrong. God's in control. He can do whatever he wants to do. I was blown away by that, and, and, and it's how God has always worked in my life. When all the doors were shut, he said, yeah, I'm going to open the doors, and you're going to know that it was me opening the door, and it was him that opened the door. It was amazing. Providence of God. And then being on the fire department, I was able to start this church, be a part of this church, start this church, and the rest is history. 
God used that strategically in my life. But it was his hand. It was his work. It was his provision. And uh, never forget that. And I've seen a lot of things happen like that with this church. And then there's the wisdom of God. So you've got the spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God, the providence of God, and you've got the wisdom of God. Acts 6, 1 through 7, you've got the church where there's having a, a dispute, a struggle over feeding some of the widows that are there. And so the elders say, hey, wait a minute, we, we can't neglect prayer and Bible study, so we need to select some deacons who will take care of that. And so it was just using their noggin, really. They were just saying, hey, we need to, we need to organize. We need to administrate this. We need to work through this. Acts 15, we, we saw that last week through the church council study group and consensus and then uh, Acts 16, this first part of the chapter, having Timothy accompany him. I don't know if you recognize this. You'll have to read it on your own. But they had Timothy accompany them because he was spoken well of by the brothers. So it was just wisdom. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It's asking for God's insight, but it's using your own noggin. It's thinking rationally through, through the issues of your life. I had a, uh, Nancy and I had a couple friend number of years ago, were wanting to go on a uh, missions trip, but they kept coming to us and saying, hey, we're under attack again financially. The, you know, the, Satan is attacking our finances, and we're not going to be able to go. And, and the more I began to explore, and the more I began to ask them questions, I realized that it wasn't Satan attacking their finances. They were attacking their own finances. They weren't using their noggin. I mean, when, when your output exceeds your intake, that means your downfall. I mean, you're not going to, that doesn't make good math. And and they, and they needed to just practice some basic principles that are found in Proverbs of record-keeping and budget and to manage what they had coming in. It was as simple as that. And it wasn't Satan attacking them. They were their, their own worst enemy, the wisdom of God. Think through what you're doing. So you got the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God, the providence of God, the wisdom of God. But here's the next few points that are the most important that kind of wraps all of that up. God, God's will is more like a game plan rather than a blueprint. Let me explain what that means. A game plan sets general guidelines with an occasional specific play. A blueprint spells everything out in great detail. Here's the point that I'm trying to say. God's not going to tell you what color car to buy, okay, or what kind of cereal you need to eat this morning, okay? I'm not going to do that. He's going to give you guidelines. Yeah, you need to take care of your body. There's things that he'll give you guidelines, but he gives you the freedom to make those choices. Yeah, sometimes he might tell you what color to buy, what color car to buy. That might be part of his specific plan, certain play that he has specific for you. But generally speaking, those will only come occasional. For the most part, he gives you guidelines to work within, and you make decisions based on that. Here's the second point. Don't be surprised when the Holy Spirit leads you into a wilderness for education and training. How many have ever sought the, the, really the guidance of the Holy Spirit only to find yourself smack dab in the middle of a wilderness and you're going, what in the world is going on? You thought you were out of God's will as a result of that. And actually the Bible would say, no, no, you're right in God's will. You can hear God and have the Holy Spirit lead you right into a wilderness situation. I gave you some examples. You can study that on your own, but the best example is obviously this text. Listen to what one commentator said as it relates to this text, and it's in the first, the first few verses of this text that we were reading. Did you notice how the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into these different regions? Listen to what this commentator said. It is possible to go a very long time without seeing where you are going. 
When Paul and his companions finally arrived at Troas, the gateway to Greece, they had come an extremely long way by an extremely circuitous route. Kind of like this, all around. They had traveled the entire length of Asia Minor without anything to show for their effort. They had planted no churches and had made no converts. Imagine their perplexity. Surely we can relate to this. There are times in our lives where it takes, it looks like we are getting nothing done or where it looks like our time and efforts are being completely wasted, but guidance is gradual. It is like a mountainous road on which you often labor hard, doubling back and seeming to get nowhere until you come to some vantage point where you can see the big picture and see how much progress you've made and where you are going. Sometimes that big vantage point isn't until we get to eternity to be with him. And so he's saying, hey, that's, that's part of it. That's, that's common. Here's the third point, most important point out of all of this right here. Get this. God's highest will for your life every day. So if you were to ask me, okay, God, what's God's will for me today? Here it is, right here. This is what, what God wants to do in your life every day. Every day is your intimate interaction with him finding your deepest satisfaction in him as your core character becomes more like him. You guys tracking with me? So here, you got your fill in the blank, intimate interaction. Intimate interaction is his will for your life. Every day, every day, you interact with him, you walk with him, you commune with him, you have a relationship with him. And out of that, what are you trying to do? You're trying to find your deepest satisfaction in him. You're increasing your joy in him. You're finding him to be your greatest delight. That's the goal of your interaction with him. And out of that will change your character. Let me just share this quick story. I didn't share it in the first service, but uh, let me share it here. Nancy and I were headed up to Flag. When we were heading up to Flag, we, we kept the, the music completely off. It was one of those times where it was just time of great solitude. As we're heading up into Flag, just outside of Flag, there was this fabulous thunderstorm happening. Her and I are sipping on uh, pumpkin spice lattes. Yum. And this thunderstorm, and we're in deep conversation. And we look over at this meadow, and there's this, these wild, yellow wildflowers lined with ponderosa pine trees. It's one of those moments where you just go, ah, let's just stay right here forever. You, know, you just want to stay in that moment. It's one of those times when you, when you see the hand of God, the beauty of God. You have this, this deep conversation and interaction with God. We've just been talking and praying throughout our ride up to flag, and it was just, it's one of those moments in the presence of God, interaction with him, where you found this amazing, deep, deep delight in him. And it was like, whatever was wrong up to that point, his perfect love chased away all of those fears at that moment. And uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I, I wish I had more of those. In fact, we had another one of those moments when we were out on our tandem bike this last week. After that rain that we had on Tuesday, Wednesday morning was, was delightful. It was beautiful out, and we were out riding our tandem bike, and the, the sun was coming through the clouds, and we had those, one of those moments where we were just seeing the beauty of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Skies proclaim the work of his hands. We have those times alone with God, interacting with him, finding great delight in him. So that it begins to transform your core character. I was thinking about this as it relates, and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cautious when I give people kind of a checklist because I don't want you to turn this into a checklist because 
Because the will of God is not, not a plan, a checklist, as much as it is a person of character. It's not a technique to be mastered kind of robotically, but it's wisdom that comes over time as you grow in your relationship with God. So it's not this punch list, it's getting to know God. And then you become a person of character who, who's able to discern his will and where he's leading you, and you're able to hear his voice more clearly. And it really requires a kind of a position, an attitude, a, a disposition of heart that you need to have. And so I was thinking about that. Well, what is this disposition of heart, and what's the best way that I can describe it? And it's been a while since I've used this as an illustration, so I thought, ah, it's, it's time to recycle this one. So here's the illustration. This disposition of heart is, is an attitude of, of humility. And I, I started thinking about the differences between dogs and cats. How many remember that illustration? Yes, okay. And uh, so the difference between dogs and cats kind of illustrate the kind of disposition that we are to have and really being able to hear God's voice more clearly. Dogs, hypothetically, I've never really read their minds, but some people say they can. But let's just say that we, we, we can, and, and a dog typically, typically their disposition is that they look up at their master and say, you, you love me, you pet me, you take care of me, you feed me, you must be God. But a cat says, you feed me, you water me, you pet me, I must be God. How many cat owners do we have in the house? Cats are demonic. Yeah. So bring your cats next week and we will cast the demons out of them. We will have a prayer service for your cats. I'm kidding. That's a bad joke, isn't it? Um... I don't like cats. But anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, but think of the disposition. Maybe your cat really thinks you're the master. But here's the attitude. Here's the attitude. If you want to hear God's voice, newsflash, here it is. Newsflash, you are not the center of the universe. Life is not about you. I know the billions of dollars that are spent on commercials to say, hey, you deserve it. Look at you. It's all about you. Yeah, you, 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 you. That's not true. It ain't about you. You want to live an empty life, a terrible life, make life all about you. Make it about you. You're not to be at the center of your life. God is to be at the center of your life. And I'm telling you, you make him the center of your life. It will set you free. When I made me at the center of my life, my wife couldn't do enough for me. Come on, honey, because it's all about me. You need to jump through the hoops. You're not living up to the standard that I'm expecting here. My, my wife, not only my wife, but my kids. Hey, I poured my heart into my kids, so they better turn out right to make me look good. And don't you dare pour, pull out in front of me on the freeway because it's about me. I will chase you home and punch you in the head. Don't. <laughs> okay. No more laughter. Oh. Guess what? When you live with Christ at the center of your life, that's what you were created to do, to make him and his glory. His glory is wonderful. Listen, there's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more satisfying than to live for his glory. No matter what goes down in your life, 
You were called to live for his glory, to, to be a display case, no matter what goes, hap- goes, ha- goes happen, whatever, whatever happens, can't even talk straight. <laughs> for his glory, for his glory. If you make it about you, nobody will ever be able to live up to those standards to, to serve you, almighty you. And so, it's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude that, God, it's about you. I live for you. I love you. I find my satisfaction in you. Okay, how the Holy Spirit converts us. We'll knock this out quick, and then we're going to take communion this morning. So you've got how the Holy Spirit speaks to us, but it's this attitude of humility, and, if, and this is where, where transformation really takes place in our life, is through this attitude of humility. And we see this in verses 11 through 34 as we studied. The gospel can reach anybody and is for everybody. The gospel can reach anybody and is for everybody. Uh, Did you notice Lydia was wealthy, was wealthy, religious, educated foreigner from Asia Minor when you study her life. The slave girl was a non-person socially, oppressed spiritually, native Greek, The jailer was a retired soldier, middle-class, secular, Roman working man, very common man, blue-collar. And what's interesting is that we have three different case studies here. The case study, Lydia is a case study of the gospel for the religious. Slave girl uh, is a case study of the gospel for the oppressed. And then the jailer is uh, a case study of the gospel for the secular And here's what's interesting. All three are worlds apart racially, spiritually, socially, psychologically, yet all are changed by the same gospel message and accepted into the same church. This is the starting of the church in Philippi. It's amazing. And and what it tells us is that there are no religious types. You know how we, we say, oh, yeah, he'd make a good Christian. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. There's no, there's no religious type. In fact, this is what I found interesting is that Christianity is the only religion that has not been dominated by one part of the world. Listen to this. See if you can track with me on this. Christianity is the only religion that's not been dominated by one part of the world, like there's a, a special type of person. For instance, Islam's geographic and demographic center has always been the Middle East. Hinduism... Geographic and demographic center has always been India. Confucianism has always been, the center has always been China. Buddhism has always been Asia. Yet Christianity started in the Middle East, then migrated to the Mediterranean as the center, and then migrated to Northern Europe as the center, and then to North America. And now there are more African and Latin American Christians, Korean and Chinese Christians, than all of North America and Western Europe combined. Why is that? Because Christianity is one religion where there is not a type, a type of person there is no culture or race that, is, that it is native to because the gospel can reach anybody and is for everybody. It's amazing. Here's the next point on your notes. Oh, by the way, let me just say that if you ever say this, and I've said this over the last couple of weeks, if you ever lose hope for anybody and show contempt for anybody, then you have forgotten that you are a sinner saved by grace. In other words, if you look at someone and say, oh, they, could, they would never be a Christian. 
They could never be a Christian. Like, like you're a prime candidate to be a Christian? No, you were as lost as they were. You just don't remember. Or are you not in touch with the grace of God that rescued you? Or you don't understand grace? You don't understand grace. Here's the next one. The gospel is the greatest unifying identity factor on the earth. Oh, did we lose our projector? You guys following? Do I need to repeat some of these? The gospel is the greatest unifying identity factor. That's your fill in the blank. Identity factor on the earth. Now think about this. Everybody has an identity factor. I'm going to talk a little bit more about identity factors next weekend. We're going to talk about idolatry. And it becomes a form of idolatry, these various identity factors. But if your identity factor, for instance, is political right, guess what? You'll disdain the left. You have to, to make yourself feel better. If your identity factor is racial, you'll disdain people not like you. That's where racism comes in. If your identity factor is wealth, you'll look down on those who don't have money. Now, this is what I found interesting in my study is that one of the commentators talked about the Jewish morning prayer. What is most surprising and maybe very deliberate is that these three persons were the three persons that were the very opposite of what a Jewish male like Paul would have been or, or sought to win to the Lord before he came to Christ. In fact, every Jewish head of, of a house would rise in the morning and thank God in a very typical and common prayer that he was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And yet those are the three that the writer Luke documents for us. And here we've got the Apostle Paul who would otherwise have rejected these three now that he has been converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's reaching out to them. And in fact, the text there at the end of the chapter, he calls them brothers and sisters. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. (laughs) The gospel so transforms our lives that people that would otherwise be our enemies, they're now our brothers and sisters. That's how you know when the gospel is really getting a hold of your life. He so transforms you, and the gospel is the greatest unifying identity factor on earth. In fact, let me take it just a step further, real quick. If you're interacting with people, and with those people that you're interacting with, if you ever feel superior or inferior to them, it's because at that moment, there's something other than the cross or the gospel is your identity factor. Let me explain what I mean. As a pastor, I mean, I put a lot of energy into this church, and and I struggle with making this my identity factor rather than the cross. And so there have been times in the past, and the Lord really made this very clear. It was a form of idolatry. That when I would get around pastors of smaller churches, I felt big. I couldn't resist it. It was like, I feel pretty big here. Look at you. You've got a small church. We've got a big church. But then when I got around guys with bigger churches than mine, guess how I felt? I felt small. Why? Because my identity factor, my identity was misplaced, not in the cross, not in the cross of Jesus Christ, but it was in the size of the church. That was wrong. It's called idolatry. Anytime you feel superior or inferior, it's because you're not living in the reality of the cross. Because here's what the cross does. The cross wipes out pride and fear. It wipes out pride like this, that when we look at the cross, it reminds us that I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful. Jesus had to die for me. How could I ever feel superior to anybody? 
But it also says this, that I was so loved. I was loved. He loved me so much he wanted to die for me. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. How could I ever feel inferior to anybody? The Savior loves you. Why would you ever feel inferior to anyone? So therefore, it creates within us a humble confidence. C.S. Lewis called it a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's because we're so filled up with his beauty and glory that it's not that you think less of yourself, you think of yourself less because you're, you're so captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done for your life. You've heard me teach that over and over again. That's stuff that needs to be pounded deep into our heart. And here's the last one. The gospel meets the deepest longings of, of our heart. I love what C.S. Lewis says, that uh, the man who has everything and God has no more than he who has God alone. So we see in these, these, uh, these case studies, Lydia went from duty to beauty. She went to duty robotically. See, see, religion says obey and God will bless you. Gospel says no, God has blessed you through the cross. It's not based on your performance. Yeah, it changes your performance when you understand that. But you enter into his blessing and it transforms you and then you obey. It goes from duty, have to, to want to. When you see the cross and it's not based on your performance, it's based on the performance of Jesus and that he forgives you and he loves you and he redeems you. The slave girl went from bondage to freedom. I mean, she was possessed, she was overwhelmed, just like that. There's no greater freedom than that which comes as the byproduct of a life that is fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And then the jailer went from temporal happiness to eternal joy. I mean, he saw these guys while they were singing. I mean, think about this. There's two things here. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion here. And if you're going to be passing out communion, find your way to the back. And we're going to be taking communion in a moment. But this is how I want us to prepare our hearts. The, the jailer witnessed two things. This is amazing. These guys had been beaten and then thrown down into the inner prison and then fastened their feet in stocks, and yet they were singing. They had a joy that was rooted so deep that you could take their comfort and their freedom away and even threaten their lives, and it didn't faze them. It was amazing. They were having right there an encounter with God. They were experiencing the amazing grace of God. They were celebrating the irresistible love of God in the midst of the worst circumstances. That's amazing. And that jailer was looking at them and said, man, I don't have that. In fact, I want to kill myself because all my honor is gone. Their honor hadn't been gone, hadn't been taken from them. Here's the next thing that we learned. And that is in uh, verses 27 through 28, the jailer was about to kill himself because he would be publicly humiliated and executed for the escape of the prisoners, as we said. And they didn't deserve to be in jail, yet they stayed for the sake of the jailer repaying evil with good. Of course, we know the ultimate example of that, of paying evil with good is Jesus Christ dying on the cross praying for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. And the reason they didn't get their freedom at the expense of the jailer's life was because they had already gotten their freedom at the expense of Jesus' life. And here's the point, I think, that we can take home, is that if your identity is in Christ, you are free to give 
everything you have because in Jesus Christ you have everything you need. So Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia, powerful enough for the slave girl, and practical enough for the jailer. He's whatever you need and more. Would you bow your heads with me? Take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. If you're here and you're a believer, you can take communion with us. If you're not a believer, you can let the, uh, the tray pass. But, but let, me, let me ask you, let me proposition you, you might say that, uh, boy, wouldn't it be amazing if this was your first day to take communion as a believer? How do you do that? Well, you, you acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. And you turn your life over to him. You confess him as your Lord and Savior. And you do that by prayer through faith. If you do that this morning, then wow, this would be the first time as a believer to take communion. Communion is a a very sacred, ancient practice. It it just means a lot to us. It's one of our church ordinances. And it's an opportunity for us to be reminded of of the cross and all that Jesus Christ has has done for us. And it's just a reminder of that. So God, remind us once again of your grace and of your goodness. That God, how you, you want to speak to us and, and through our conversation, our communication, our communion with you, that God, you want to transform our lives. God, we, we trust in you. We, we look to you this morning. We open our hearts to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments as, you, as they pass out the communion trays. Uh, just take the the cup, it's a, it's a double cupped and underneath the one cup is, is the bread and, and I'm going to walk us through the process here in just a minute as we take communion.